Good morning. How are you? Um, would you, as a courtesy to others, uh, make sure your phone is in the off position? And welcome to those of you who are watching online. I used to call you pajama people, but our analytics show you're all over the country. So, and a few of you are in other parts of the world. So welcome, I'm glad you're here. I want to tell you all, uh, and this is not my notes, but you're going to be hearing more about it. I have discovered a new theologian. Her name is Jan Phillips. You can Google her. She has written a number of books. Her latest book, which I just finished reading this morning, is called Still on Fire. Jan Phillips grew up in a very um, rigid Roman Catholic family and at the age of six or seven decided she wanted to be a nun. And she went into the convent out of uh, high school and stayed in the convent until right before taking final orders, at which point she got kicked out. My kind of person. Right? She got kicked out because she's gay. And uh, even so, even since then, she's been uh, on um, peace initiative work all over the world. And I found out about her because when Michael Moorwood came through a few weeks ago and was our house guest, he told me about her. Michael and Jan have done programs together. And in this book, she even writes about a program that she did with Michael Moorwood. And so um, <clears throat> I've reached out to her and asked her if, um, not if, but when we can get scheduled so that she can come and be with us. She's dynamite. I just want you to know. If you get the book, my suggestion is read the next to the last chapter first and then go back and read the, her about her journey. It's really good. I mean, I'm just hoping... I'm putting the energy out there by saying it. Jan, if you're out there, we want you to come here. And maybe you could do that. Okay. So thanks to the people at the back who make this possible, and I'm glad that you are here. And um, let's begin as we do in silence. Just do whatever you need to do to bring yourself inside this space. Kind of put everything else out. So our goal, as you know, is to be present and to be open and to be aware. I have found it incredibly beneficial this past week to uh, get back into pretty intense gratitude practice, although I do that every day and recommend it. Um, just think about if you're grateful that you're here, that's something to be grateful for. If you're grateful you're still breathing and above ground, that's something to be grateful for. And if there were people who touched your life to get you from there to here, you want to be grateful for those folks. And today being um, Sunday, 
You might have uh, time to find it in your heart to uh, express gratitude to those people somehow. Send them an email or call them up or write them a note. Do that. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I love knowing stuff, um, especially secrets. So if you got a secret, tell me. And if it's about the person sitting next to you, I'd really like to know <laughs> what that's about. Got secrets. Um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram, and the personality type books that talk about sevens say that sevens have a continuous thirst for new information of all kinds. And though I would not know this for decades, my family that I grew up in, my family of origin, was one that was full of secrets and pretense. And I gotta tell you, that's a great gateway for someone to become interested in magic. Secrets. The field of magic is where you learn things that other people don't know. And of course, if it's to be useful, you have to show it off. I think most children go through a phase of wanting to show off their secret knowledge, I would imagine that every person in this room, and if you're a parent, you've seen your children go through that. Every person goes through at some point the phase of having learned something that causes that child to want to say to their parents or any other adult around, want to see a trick. <laughs> and of course, nobody does. Nobody wants to see a trick. Uh, most adults usually tolerate this phase. And most children usually grow out of it. <laughs> Fortunately, some of us don't. And I'm in that group. And when I was in elementary school, this sometimes got me in trouble. For example, I want to show you what I learned in elementary school, and I, I hope that this you can use this to cause trouble wherever you go. I figured out a way, and I put uh, food coloring in here so that you could simply see it. I figured out a way when I was in junior high, no, in, in fourth grade, to fill up a glass with water. This is the reason I brought a towel, because this can be so messy to fill up a, a, a glass of water and cover it with a piece of paper. And if you do this just right, you can turn this glass upside down and the water will stay in the glass. Now this is not a magic trick. This is a physics experiment. The pressure on the outside of the glass keeps the water in. Now I'm gonna tell you something about how this got me in trouble. 
You can take this glass and put it on your fourth grade teacher's desk. <laughs> now, it can't be a wooden desk. Oh! And that happens when you do it. So anyway, that's why they go, that goes. It was supposed to stay in there longer than that. That water coming out of there, by the way, is uh, a metaphor for our time. We're being unexpectedly flooded. Or to change the metaphor, we have entered a very dark and troublesome time. Now, as some of you know, we are doing in this class a deep dive in the Gospel of John. Uh, the best love verse in the Gospel, probably in the, in the New Testament, probably in the entire Bible, is in the Gospel of John. People hold it up on signs at ball games. John 3.16, right? That's enough to get people to know what that verse is about. Probably all of you know it. Just two verses after this in John, there is this. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and, and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it. Fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the, work, for the God work it is. And the words that I would highlight in this passage are addicted to denial and illusion. Uh, we are addicted as a culture to denial and illusion, and because of that, it has plunged us into a really dark time. And sadly, we have become relatively immune to it. The uh, mass murders in Buffalo and Uvalde got major press attention. Overlooked is the fact that on Memorial Day weekend, while we were here last Sunday, there were 16 additional mass shootings. That is, a mass shooting is a shooting that involves four more people every, every event. Or to put this another way, there have been over 215 mass shootings so far this week. They didn't, I mean, so far this year, they didn't get reported because just the way things are. And the way things are is that they can be dark. And if we can be healed of our blindness, this healing is not going to make the dark go away. I'll be clear about that. But we may, in the dark, be able to be, to be sustained by the mystery of grace that is in this time. Now, I am basing this talk on the last sign that is in the book of signs in the Gospel of John. And um, as we delve into this particular sign, we're going to be with it more than one Sunday, you're going to be hearing things that you've not heard before. 
I, my hunch is that's true. So you remember that the Gospel of John is a very mystical book about a very, very mystical man named Jesus. It is not a historical account. John, by our best scholarships, was written sometime near the end of the first century, around the year 97 or 98. So that what you were about to hear, if it had been a historical event, I mean something that physically, literally, actually happened during the lifetime of Jesus, it would have been a major deal in the developing narratives of the Jesus story. But you don't hear about it in Mark, the earliest gospel, or in Luke or Matthew, who copied their stuff from Mark, most of it. It's not in any of the other narratives that didn't make it into the gospel story. This story that you're about to hear is only in the gospel of John. It, it's uh, the longest passage that I have ever read in here. So try to stay in a room. I'm not going to read it every week, but we are going to spend more than one time on this class because this story is about waking up Remember the story that we just finished, the healing of the man born blind. This story is about waking up, and the first part of waking up is you're in the dark. Okay? So I'm going to read you the story. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the same Mary who massaged the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and then wiped them with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick, so the sisters sent word to Jesus. Master, the one you love so very much is sick. Now put your thinking caps on. Uh, where else in the scripture have you heard of a character named Lazarus? Just think about that because we'll come back to it. Not today, but next week. When Jesus got the message, he said, this sickness is not fatal. It will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying God's Son. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on where he was for two more days. After the two days, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. They said, Rabbi, you can't do that. The Jews, the Jews here is a theological category, not an ethnic designation. The Jews are out to kill you, and you're going back? Jesus replied, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daylight doesn't stumble because there's plenty of light from the sun. Walking at night, he might very well stumble because he can't see where he is going. He said these things and then announced, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. The disciples said, Master, if he's gone to sleep, he'll get a good rest and wake up feeling fine. Jesus was talking about death while the disciples thought he was just taking a nap. Then Jesus became explicit. Lazarus died, and I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. You're about to be given new grounds for believing. Now let's go to him. That's when Thomas, the one called the twin, said to his companions, Come along, we might as well die with him. When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away. 
And many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. These Jews were the Jews in the Johannine community. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, he will give you. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. That sounds like something so typical a person in a pastoral religious category would say. Ah, don't worry, no big deal. It's all going to be fine. Martha replied, I know he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. Compliant parishioner giving the right doctrinal answer. Jesus said, you don't have to wait for the end. I am right now. Resurrection and life. Now, in John and in the developing Christian community, the definite article was not put in front of the word resurrection. That's a very important theological thing to grasp. When we talk about resurrection, it's not the resurrection, it's resurrection. Not there, now. Not then, now. Want to point that out. I am right now resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live, and everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, ear The teacher's here and is asking for you. The moment she heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. We could do a whole class on if only. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. Others among them said, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the, man, the eyes of a, man blind, a blind man. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up with him, and arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time there is a stench. He has been dead four days. This is a parable. It is not a literally true story. This is a parable. This guy is deader than a doornail. And that's the point of the parable. He's not asleep. He started, the body's starting to rot. Jesus looked her in the eye. Did not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then to the others, go ahead, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. 
And he came out a cadaver, wrapped from head to toe and with a handkerchief over his face. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him loose. It's a great story. Now, in the sign story that precedes this, that of the man born blind, Jesus broke about every law and every custom that was in the Jewish community from which the Johannine community was extruded. Now, keep in mind that John was written as a way, among other things, to explain why and how the Johannine community had begun to call themselves the new Israel. And it's written to explain how they got kicked out of their home church because they no longer believed the things that they were raised to believe. Oh, I hope you see the relevance of this. So Jesus challenged Jewish theology. The, their theology said sin is connected with whether a person was good or bad or not. Jesus said poppycock. That's not true. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. He bypassed the Jewish religious leaders pronouncing the man clean without the man having to go through Jewish channels and paying for the privilege. He healed the man on the Sabbath, and he claimed that this act was to be seen as the act of the power of God at work in this man's life. Now, again, keep in mind that too is a parable. All seven of the signs in the Gospel of John are parables created by the early Christian community to explain why and how they had experienced light and life through the life and teachings of Jesus. It is so powerful, this story, this Lazarus story, and so important that we're going to spend more time with it. And um, we're going to try to give a thorough analysis to why this particular parable came into existence. We'll do some of that next week. The whole of John is about how Jesus, who was the light of the world to these people, had brought to them new life like that given to Lazarus by delivering them from the bondage of darkness into which they had been born by virtue of simply being Jews. The Jewish people in the time of Jesus bragged that both their ethnicity and their theology gave them a special privilege. We are children of Abraham. So. The point is, there is no living in the light of new light without acknowledging that we are in the dark, which is something no one wants to do. Yet the fact is, this is a dark time, and we need, in my opinion, to embrace this truth. Now, I want to assure you that this is not a Chicken Little talk. You know the story of Chicken Little, right? Some of you. He's a character who runs around telling everybody, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And some preachers love to use that tactic. 
Doomsday is around the corner, but I have the solution, which usually involves money for a new, for a new jet. Perhaps the most famous American Protestant example of this is a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And although I have not done a thorough research of this, it is the only sermon so far that I know that has its own Wikipedia page. And I'm putting a link in the summary that goes that, or you can go home and look it up this afternoon. The, the, the preaching of this sermon was a catalyst for starting what is called the First Great Awakening in America. It's just a god-awful sermon. It is just awful. But it was so powerful. God dangles people over the pits of a fair, fiery hell by a spider thread. And he doesn't tell them uh, there's no way out until the preacher tells him at the very last moment, if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can avoid this. And during the sermon, people would cry out, interrupting the preacher, what can we do? I mean, it was very effective. You don't hear that happening in this class. <laughs> or in the church across, in the sanctuary across the way. So for those of you who don't know, the complete story of Chicken Little does not have a happy ending. Chicken Little likes to walk in the woods. She likes to look at the trees. She likes to smell the flowers. She likes to listen to the birds singing. And one day while she's out walking, an acorn falls from a tree, hits her on top of her little head, and she says, oh my, the sky is falling. I must run and tell Lion about it. So Chicken Little begins to run. She runs and runs, and by, by, by and by she meets the hen, where are you going, asked the hen. Oh, Henny Penny, the sky's falling, and I'm going to the lion to tell him about it. How you know it, asked Henny Penny. Well, it hit me on the head, so it must be so. Let me go with you, says Henny Penny. Run, run. So the two run and run until they meet Ducky Lucky. The sky's falling, says Henny Penny. We're going to the lion to tell him about it. How do you know that, asked Ducky Lucky. Well, it hit Chicken Little on the head, says Henny Penny. May I come with you, asked Ducky Lucky. All three of them run on and on until they meet Foxy Loxy. <laughs> Where are you going, asked Foxy Loxy. The sky is falling and we're going to the line to tell him about it, says Ducky Lucky. Do you know where he lives, asked the fox. I don't, says Chicken Little. I do, says the fox. End of story. So the Chicken Little story is a lot it's the story who cried wolf. You know, he cried it so many times that when the wolf really came and he cried wolf, nobody came. So I think we need to be careful in stating that the sky is falling. But it seems to me to be a fact that we are living in a very dark. And we need to ask ourselves, as mostly white adults in a well-off demographic, how is it that this huge number of mass killings that happen 
last weekend kind of went off the radar. It is also a fact that in wise and useful spiritual traditions, the only place where hope is found is in the dark. Check it out. Hebrew scriptures, Christian scriptures, that's the truth. And this period was known by a monk who's known as John of the Cross, which is not his real name, as the dark night of the soul. Now, <clears throat> I think you and I have something in common about what I'm about to say. In my quest to know the secret of things over the years, I've sought out and found many wonderful teachers. And as I said at the very beginning of our time today, if you want to light some flicker of light in your own heart and soul, and then in the heart and souls of other people, find those people and things you're grateful for and lift them up. Share that. Share it with the people for whom you are grateful. If you find being here helpful, thank the people who made it possible. Be grateful for people who give you light on your journey. I'm a strong advocate of keeping a dream journal, keeping a journal, keeping a gratitude journal. I do it every day. And I wouldn't ask you to do something that I don't do. I'm grateful for so much. So often I repeat the same things over and over. I'm grateful I woke up. Just grateful for so much. There is a man for whom I have a great deal of gratitude. I keep a picture of him on my desk. And uh, his name is George. You've heard me talk about him before. George has been dead for over a quarter century now. I was attracted to this guy because of his laughter. Because he was always laughing, he was always smiling, and I thought, boy, I would love some of that. I drove George crazy. Because I would end up most every spiritual direction session I had with him by asking him, um, what can I do? Tell me what to do. And, and, and because I wanted to be so like him. George is the man who said to me uh, very early, my goal is to knock you off the path because it's getting back on the path where you learn. So um, one day he said to me in great exasperation, he said, look, there's nothing I can tell you about what to do in order to be. I can tell you some things that people who are busy being do, but that's no guarantee that if you do these things, you will experience being like they experience. Now let that sit with you. I love cooking. I consider myself a good cook. I'm hesitant to share my recipes with people, though, because good cooks don't follow recipes. And it took me a long time, embarrassingly long time, to get it that that's what George meant. He couldn't give me a recipe. 
Years later, my training analyst would say to me, in order to understand the secret of this, you must experience that unconsciousness responds to consciousness in the same way that consciousness regards unconsciousness. And I, you know, I'm not bragging. I got a doctorate, postdoctorate degree, and I said, huh? I didn't get this. Now, the key words in this sentence are understand and then experience. In order to understand the secret of this, you must know that unconsciousness down here responds to consciousness, which is up here, in the same way that consciousness regards unconsciousness. So that if consciousness disregards the messages that are coming from the unconscious, either individually or collectively, we do that at great peril. These messages down here come from the dark. They're unconscious. We don't know them. Our culture has a collective unconscious. And if consciousness disregards the message from unconsciousness, unconsciousness says, okay, you won't pay attention to me directly. I'm going to get your attention because that's my job. So I'm going to give you an addiction, make you have an affair, make you have an accident make you break the law, make you do something, i got to get your attention some way. Now, I want to start here, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but just ride with me. I'm not going to do this another Sunday. Part of the dark night unconscious that we are in as a country is that we are addicted to guns. One definition of addiction is doing something that damages or limits one's own or another's well-being and either denying that this is occurring or seeming to be helpless to stop the behavior. Now, uh, I'll take the focus off guns. Let's talk about alcohol. And this is also not a class about alcohol um, or the, the evils of, of drinking. Though alcohol is the leading cause of deaths of all kind in this country more than anything else other than guns. And there's no matter, no telling how many physical illnesses that lead to death are alcohol related. The vast majority of vehicle accidents, including road rage, a high percentage of domestic violence and so forth can be directly attributed to the consumption of alcohol. That's a fact. You can look at the statistics. Go to the CDC. Look it up. I'm not making these things up. Now, we put some guardrails around the purchase and consumption of alcohol, but they're easily skirted. And as a result of extensive and effective lobbying, the best advice that the public gets from the alcohol industry is drink responsibly. That's it. And don't drink if you're pregnant. The fact is that alcohol, and I enjoy it, you enjoy it, it's a lethal addictive substance. 
So after getting licensed by the state of Texas to practice psychotherapy, my first real paying job was to work for a program out of the Department of Psychiatry at Baylor where the only patient population I saw for two years were alcoholics and their families. That's, that was it. That was it. So I have seen people lose their health, their jobs, their marriages, their families, their self-respect. They're standing in the community because of their addiction to alcohol. And I have seen spouses and parents and children and friends do these interventions. They threat, they bribe, they try to construct deals to get people to not drink, and they all fail. I've seen people promise, I'm going to quit. That was my last drunk. I've seen people do all of that kind of thing, and, and none of those work. It was frustrating work. It was heartbreaking work. And when my supervisor asked me one day when I was experiencing my frustration, he said, Bill, why do you think people stop drinking? And by this time, I had no clue. And I said, I don't know. And he said, people stop drinking when they want a better way of life. If our culture has an addiction, we will quit it. Not by laws, not by threats, not by interventions, not by shaming, but when we want a better way of life. When we don't want 215 mass shootings in a weekend, we'll stop. Now everybody in my age group trained in the psychology, knows of the works of the psychologist Rollo May. He wrote an extremely influential book when I was coming along in my training uh, called Love and Will. Uh, Rollo May was a close friend of Paul Tillich's, and he is one of the two people who, is, who are considered the fathers of existential psychology. Uh, Rollo May is one, and Viktor Frankl is the other. Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, was a signed text when I started training in the 60s. So, Love and Will and, and um, Victor Frankl are pioneers in that field. Ronald May has a brother. Actually, he's a half-brother. That's why there's so much age difference in him. Ronald May's brother is both a psychiatrist and a theologian. And uh, he's a great friend of Richard Rohr's. He's deceased now, too. I mean, not Richard, but Gerald is. And um, I heard Richard once talk about their friendship, and he said that when they first met, they took a long walk together. Now, you know Richard Rohr, of Richard Rohr. He's written a shelf of books like this, and so is Gerald May. And they were going for this walk, talking about these deep spiritual things. And uh, Richard says that they stopped, and Gerald turned to him and told him the funniest, most risque joke he'd ever heard. And he said, I knew right then we were going to be best friends. <laughs> Jeremy has written what I think is the best book on addiction from a spiritual perspective that has ever been written. It's called Addiction and Grace. I've read this book three times, at least. It is about grace, which is the word I want to use other, rather than God. Addiction and God, addiction and grace. 
He also has written a book, which is very apt for the time in which we live, called The Dark Night of the Soul. A psychiatrist explores the connection between darkness and spiritual growth. Now, in that first book, Addiction and Grace, May says that the way that people give up addictions is that they are willing to be aware that they are surrounded by grace. Not that they do anything to get grace, not that they beg grace to come to them. We become aware that we are already in the sacred heart of grace. And, and further in this book, May says that addictions are the result of our attempting to assert complete control over our life. I don't feel good, I take something in, it changes me, alcohol changes you immediately, and so I feel better, or get to sleep, or do whatever. Addictions are our way to achieve control. I believe this accounts for the massive amounts of military-style assault weapons owned by American citizens. And I'm not talking about people who own guns for hunting and sport and that sort of thing. I'm talking about your average American citizen who wants to own a military assault rifle that fires three to 600 shells a minute, all right? Ask a person why, why do you have this gun? And at bottom, the answer is gonna have to do with control and power. Why do you own an AK-47? Because I can. That's the answers I've gotten. And then someone said I might need it someday, and I hope I'm not around on that day. I'm not sure that pointing out addiction statistics does any good, but I'm going to do it. The leading cause of death among children from the age of zero to 19 is gun death. That's our country. No other country on the planet has that statistic. And our best collective response to this is thoughts and prayers. Now, the people in the Johannine community are those who had been born blind. And they were brought into the light by the life and teachings of Jesus. They are the Lazarus that has come forth into new life and light. But you know that Lazarus has been dead for stinking days. And when he comes out of the tomb, he's wrapped in cloth like a cadaver. It's not, oh boy, life. So as we go forward, guided by the material in John, we're going to deal directly with what the great mystics and spiritual teachers affirm, namely that it is in undergoing the dark night of the soul that we stand the greatest chance to experience the grace that can lead us to put our addictions aside. Now, of course, if we're going to put our addictions aside, we have to put some other things aside as well. We have to enter the land of our shadows before we have any hope of righting the wrongs that beset us. It's a harrowing journey, 
but um, we'll go together. We'll hold each other's hand. Get scared. Wendell Berry, the uh, farmer poet, knows the dark. You like the poems of Wendell Berry? You know Wendell Berry? He said, <clears throat> to go into the dark with a light is to know light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. The dark is the best blank screen onto which to project all that is unsolved and unloved in our hearts. We're afraid of the dark because we can't see what's in the dark. And naturally, we assume the worst. Now, you've, you've heard me say a ton, dozen times that I started this journey because uh, as a child, I was afraid of the dark. And I will tell you, one of the things that I have learned from that young child who is terrified of the dark until now is that everybody's scared of the dark. I didn't know that. I thought I was the only one. But I've learned that children are afraid of the dark and the child in us is afraid of the dark. We're afraid of the dark that's under, underneath things. You know, that's what's in the closet, what's under the bed, what's in the basement. What's under our most cherished beliefs? Now, patriarchal religions usually prefer sun gods. They like the light and fire and order. And it's true, order and clarity are good. They also contribute to arrogance because the very sun that illuminates also blinds and dehydrates and kills when we get too much of it. You go back to the creation myth in Genesis, and we're warned you can't separate the night from the day. If we try, they have no meaning separate from each other. Yin and yang go together. Dark and light go together. The whole of creation exists inside one ongoing cycle. Evening came and morning came, and it was the first day. All things on earth are a mixture of darkness and light. And when we idolize things as totally good or condemn otherness as totally bad, we get ourselves in trouble. Now, Jesus is a lunar teacher. Lunar is in moon, what illumines the dark. Jesus is patient with darkness. You got weeds and wheat growing together. He said, I'll leave it alone. It'll take care of itself. Don't worry about it. He describes God, if you want to use this metaphor, as somebody who goes away on a long journey, leaving everybody alone. <clears throat> the notion that Jesus inherited of God or grace is one that came from the Hebrew tradition, the prophetic tradition. Jesus was in that prophetic Jewish tradition. Jesus was a prophetic Jewish mystic. And this is the kind of tradition that Jesus himself inherited and then seeks to pass on to people like us. 
This is from the prophet Isaiah for Isaiah 2. I mean, the second writer of Isaiah. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. Don't be afraid. I am with you. I don't think Lazarus can hear the cry of grace to come forth unless Lazarus, first of all, gets it, that he's in the dark. So go from here and live your life doing what you do with love. Just remember to honor the trinity of love, honesty, and freedom, and I'll see you here next week with a glass that works. <laughs>